The first generation BlackBerry Pearl was, by most metrics, a really great phone. The 8100 series Pearl had great connectivity options, a built-in address book and calendar, it had voice dialing and speakerphone functions, it had a 1.33 megapixel camera, and being a BlackBerry device, it also had a big old keyboard that you could use to type out complex messages at pretty decent speeds. It also allowed you to receive emails on your phone, and an upgraded version, the 8120, had a 2 megapixel camera and allowed you to connect to the web using a simple browser and Wi-Fi connectivity. The BlackBerry Pearl is an interesting device to me because it's arguably the apex device of the age of the mobile phone. This device type today often called feature phones because they were phones with additional features added on to their core feature of being a phone, they peaked the same year that the Pearl hit the market back in 2006. Why did feature phones peak that year? Because the next year, 2007, was the year that the first iPhone was released. Now, this is not to say that feature phones completely disappeared overnight. BlackBerry, in fact, struggled mightily in the years following the first iPhone's release, doubling down on its physical keyboard and mouse cursor user interface, even as the industry inextricably shifted in another direction toward touchscreens. And the iPhone gave competitors plenty of opportunity to catch up. It did some fairly impressive things right out of the box. But the first generation iPhone in particular was really more of a collection of party tricks than anything truly revolutionary. It didn't have apps or an app store. It pretty much did what the BlackBerry Pearl did, but everything was software. The keyboard was not real. It was part of a somewhat finicky and low-resolution touchscreen. You could call people using the phone app, and there were some games and a calculator built in. It was very cool, but it was mostly just that. Those were all things that the BlackBerry Pearl could do as well, just with a different user interface, and arguably a far better keyboard. But those oh-wow-cool things became way more than just that in subsequent years, especially after the release of the iPhone 3GS, the third generation of the iPhone, which hit shelves in 2009, and which significantly improved the phone's internal processing power, but also upped its download and upload speeds, and improved the camera, allowing it to take 3 megapixel photos and shoot simple videos. The iPhone's main competitor, or rather iOS, the iPhone operating system's main competitor, the Android operating system, was announced the same year as the first generation iPhone, back in 2007. But the first Android device wasn't available to buy until over a year after the first iPhone was available, giving Apple a substantial head start. Further, because Android, which was purchased by Google in 2005, was actually more like the centerpiece of what was called the Open Handset Alliance, a group of hardware, software, and telecommunications companies that were evolving open standards for mobile devices. It was a far more complex undertaking in many ways. Google didn't even make their own phone. 
using their operating system until 2010. And even then, it was a partnership with HTC that allowed them to build the unlocked, network-agnostic Nexus One phone. All of which meant the burgeoning smartphone space was a headlong rush into the unknown from day one. The iPhone represented Apple's approach to this new space, which was to essentially take a handful of things that had been done not terribly well before, obsessively refine and perfect those things, and lash them together into something new and almost magical feeling. On the other end of the spectrum, Google was leading an alliance of companies who were working on a more open model of a very similar, at times litigation-inspiringly similar, collection of devices, but which were largely in opposition to the walled garden philosophy to which Apple adhered. They allowed pretty much anyone to use their Android OS, leveraging it and forking it into new spin-off operating systems at will, while Apple closely guarded their intellectual property and made something more finely polished, if less diverse. And when the dust settled and we all woke up one day, with smartphones on our bedside tables and in our pockets pretty much 24-7, the feature phone had almost entirely disappeared in most developed countries. They still exist, of course. The components in feature phones, like the BlackBerry Pearl, are so common and cheap today that they have become valuable as burner phones, meant to be used a few times before tossing them, or as a spare phone to bring on adventures or to keep in the glove box of your car for emergencies. And they do still have some utility in that they are quite rugged and energy-sipping. You can drop an old Motorola and it'll bounce, since there's not much screen on the phone to damage. And you can keep that same old Motorola feature phone in a drawer somewhere, unused, and it may not need to be charged for weeks or even months. Those are two capabilities that we left behind when we refocused our attention on devices that are composed mostly of shatterable screens and other surfaces and little else beyond that. But there are other things that we left behind with the BlackBerry Pearl as well. The concept of carrying a mobile phone around, for instance, and all the norms that came with the idea of a mobile phone. Because if we're being honest with ourselves, smartphones are not really phones. They're devices that have, tucked amongst all their other tools, a phone app. And you can use the built-in antenna to make calls using that phone app, much like you would on a phone. Though an increasing amount of the quote-unquote phone calls that we make using our smartphones are not actual phone calls in the traditional sense. They are so-called telephony, using Wi-Fi signals and data of that kind. These devices today instead are primarily mobile computers. They're media devices. The majority of what most of us use them for day-to-day is internet-related. We use them to generate and consume images and movies and music and podcasts. We use them to tap into the massive online communities that have been built in the years since Facebook pulled an Apple and took a lot of what was kind of working already with other smaller, less successful social networks at the time and wrangled and polished them into something that worked much better. And in the years since then, Since the smartphone landed in our lives and rapidly changed the way that we do business, the way that we socialize, the way that we seek and find and present information, the way that we shop and exchange money, 
the way that we pronk and flirt and maintain relationships, the world has changed. And it's changed in part because of this new device and what it has allowed us to do. And in part because of all the supplementary technologies that have evolved in an orbit around it. All of the components of the larger mesh of gadgets and gizmos and infrastructure that go into the mobile internet and that have been kindled and fed by that network. What I want to talk about today is one particular facet of those changes. A stratum of society that is assessed and criticized more than most, but which is also more directly impacted by changing technologies and the consequences of those changes than most other groups. Today, I want to talk about how smartphones are affecting young people. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from The Atlantic, and it's entitled, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? Now, right off the bat, that title is quite the question. And that headline, if you read the article, I think it becomes pretty clear that the editor maybe went a little hyperbolic to get more clicks, because at least in my estimation, this article's assessment of what's happening to young people and youth culture on average is kind of a mixed bag. So it's a leading rhetorical question there. But let's talk about what is happening. For better or for worse, smartphones have become extensions of our bodies. This is true for many of us, regardless of our age. But it's particularly true of teens, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it. I am, as I record this, 32 years old, and I lived a great deal of life before getting my first smartphone. I was in my early 20s when I got an iPhone 3GS to replace my then-aging Motorola Razr. I remember printing off Google Map directions to get somewhere that I'd never been back when I was still learning to navigate the unfamiliar streets of Los Angeles. And I remember long before that, the good old days of dial-up internet, and even further still, back in history, the days in which there was no mainstream internet. I remember helping the teachers at my elementary school install games onto the new computers they just got from CD-ROMs because that was a new thing that they had never done before, and I had been incentivized to learn how to use these fancy new CD-ROMs because, well, I really wanted to play the newest iteration of Oregon Trail. I remember what it was like to go play at my best friend's house when the digital entertainment system du jour was a Nintendo, and then a Super Nintendo, and then a PlayStation all in-person games where you would sit with another human being in the same room and play. Notably, that was the scary new thing that parents worried about at the time, anything that involved a screen. I remember making friends and developing relationships before most of the foundations and mediums in which such things take place were digital. At a point in time where we would meet in person at various physical real-world locations, ideally places where there were no parents or other authority figures, and failing that, we would talk on the phone, just the phone. I have all of those reflexes in place. I have a certain kind of nostalgia 
for ways of doing things that are non-digital, non-smartphone-based, non-network-dependent. I can recognize the value in our modern tools, but because I grew up straddling that other pre-smartphone world and the world in which we live today, I can also imagine a world without all of these things. I remember life without all these magical gizmos and non-tangible connections. And so I have a sense of before and after the dawn and widespread adoption of all of these things. Younger people do not necessarily have these same memories. I mean, I'm sure some people in these younger generations do. The families in which we grow up makes a huge difference when it comes to the specifics of what we know and consider to be normal. And I'm guessing that some parents will always sass their children into spending at least a small portion of their time outside, regardless of how fabulously entertaining and convenient all of our little screens can be. But in general, in aggregate, young people today, particularly teenagers, have always had these types of devices, have always been connected by these types of networks, been nodes in those networks. And as a consequence, the norms and fond memories those of us a generation or a half a generation older have, they don't have those. They may not see the point. They may not even be aware that these other things are options or why they should choose those options over their other clearly more powerful and desirable ones. And I'm not talking about appreciation of a caricaturized version of these past ideals and habits in the trendy, faux-nostalgic sense, where teens who have never actually used cassette tapes come to romanticize cassette tapes, just as people my age, who never lived in the heyday of vinyl, have come to romanticize vinyl. That certainly happens, and there are marketing factors behind a lot of that, in addition to the human predilection to flatten and appropriate things like that from the past for modern reinterpretation and self-definition. What I'm talking about, though, is a group of people who have never known true disconnection, who for their entire lives have been part of a larger mesh, have had vital experiences, have had relationships and heartbreak, have had their most reliable channels with their best friends contained within and amplified by these little devices that we keep in our pockets. And as a result of this, their habits around these devices have come to shape their lives. They didn't have other versions of relationships and lifestyles that existed before these devices. And just as being able to go out with friends and later interact with friends via those game consoles and mobile phones shaped my habits and priorities, these mediums, these networks, these smartphones have come to shape the lives of teenagers in many different ways and according to many different dimensions. And all of this can sound terribly tragic if you're looking at it from the outside perspective of an older person who romanticizes other things. If connection and relationship building to you is cruising to the drive-in with a crush or listening to records together in your parents' basement, yeah, a lot of the habits and rituals and priorities of younger generations will seem totally out of whack or even sad to you. But interestingly, a lot of the consequences of these changes in habits are, by the numbers at least, wildly better than their counterparts found in previous generations. 
There are a lot of very solid studies that are referenced in this article that are worth checking out individually if you're interested in looking at studies. But the summary is that teenagers today, when compared to teenagers of the past, and particularly of the past several decades, but also in some cases compared to any other group of teenagers that we have data for, the teens of today are less likely to become pregnant as teenagers. They're less likely to do drugs or drink. They're less likely to get in automobile accidents. They're less likely to catch STDs or fight with each other or kill each other. In essence, all of the things that teenagers have been famously at risk for in the modern developed world, they are no longer at risk for, or at least not to the same degree as teens of the recent past. All of those numbers have plummeted, and the reason for this crash and the pervasiveness of risky behavior is that instead of getting their driver's license, or going to parties at a friend's house and doing drugs and binge drinking, or finding a good makeout spot in a remote part of town, the average teen today is able to start and develop relationships through their phones. They're engaged through their smartphones. They are engaging digitally rather than physically. And as a consequence, all the sex, drugs, and driving-related stats have been downgraded to fringe concerns rather than epidemics of stupid stuff that kids do while figuring out who they are and slowly but surely becoming adults. The flip side of those statistics, though, is that other issues like loneliness and depression and suicide attempts have steadily increased. Teens are spending less time out and about, putting their bodies at risk, but as a consequence, they're engaging in more activities and habits that can heavily influence their psychological well-being. And I mean that on multiple levels, from the fundamental mechanisms that help them communicate the way they do, all the way up to the way that people behave in the digital world compared to the tangible world. Some of the data on these issues show fairly dramatic shifts in psychological norms for this age demographic. Eighth graders who heavily use social media, which is the majority of eighth graders, increase their risk of depression by 27%. Teens who spend three hours a day or more on electronic devices, which, again, is the majority of that age demo, are 35% more likely to have risk factors for suicide. In 2011, for the first time in 24 years, the teen suicide rate was higher than the teen homicide rate. Teens are killing themselves more than they're killing each other, which, I mean, is good in that there are fewer murders taking place as a consequence of this reshuffling of how they spend their time and interact, and where and with whom. But again, it creates a whole new issue that has just as many facets and hurdles in terms of getting it under control, in terms of solving the underlying triggers. Now, with all this data, it's important to remember that the quality of the research will vary, and the way in which they test for these things, the groups they survey, for instance, and the quantity of people involved, all of these things will influence the outcomes and the stats that they can then report. The results would be very different between relatively wealthy suburbs and relatively impoverished rural areas and relatively middling urban areas, for instance. The results will obviously also vary from country to country based on all kinds of variables from the cultural perception of technology in one's everyday life to things like VAT fees that can increase the price of products like smartphones 
by as much as 150%. It's also important to remember that each and every one of these trends that we're measuring here have countless causes and triggers and underlying reasons. Smartphones alone are not changing the fundamentals of socialization. And we don't even see the whole picture by looking at the technological infrastructure that allows such socialization norms to shift. It's cultural, it's economic, it's technological, it's political. It's big and complex and difficult to keep track of. There is a lot going on here. And to put a pin in just one cause and say, yep, we figured it out, here's what happened, that would be beyond disingenuous. The article made a point about this as well, saying, quote, Depression and suicide have many causes. Too much technology is clearly not the only one, and the teen suicide rate was even higher in the 1990s, long before smartphones existed. Then again, about four times as many Americans now take antidepressants, which are often effective in treating severe depression, the type most strongly linked to suicide. End quote. All of which is to say, it's good to suss out causes and to try to ascertain impacts, but we also shouldn't feel too cozy about seemingly simple answers to complex questions. And all questions regarding this type of thing are complex. If anything ever seems like a straight line from point A to point B, when it comes to human beings and our behavior in particular, you're probably missing a lot of important context in between. But all that said, in general, there does seem to be a correlation here between this shift in norms and the new emergence, and in some cases re-emergence, of certain negative psychological trends and conditions. One of the most vital connections here, I would argue, is the increased psychic tax on normal, everyday things when those things take place online rather than in real life. You might feel left out or like a failure because it seems like everyone else is out doing things, meeting with people, living these amazing lives. And you may even know intellectually that what you're seeing online is a glossy, outward-facing version of how they really live. But that doesn't necessarily change the emotional punch in the gut that you feel when comparing your inner experience to their heavily filtered and cropped outward experience. On top of that... Many of the things that were once temporal and regional, taking place in the space of your parents' basement or maybe within the confines of a small town, are now worldwide issues. Every get-together is posted online, and every piece of gossip is immortalized in Google's search results and in the recesses of someone's Facebook gallery. So in addition to the paranoia that you're maybe on the outs with a friend, because they didn't like a photo that you posted on Instagram. You might struggle with anxiety that the wrong photo or comment will be shared too widely or taken out of context. An awkward photo or a badly phrased comment might come to define you in some negative way and ruin your life forever. Studies have also shown that we behave very differently online compared to how we might behave in real life. Particularly striking is how many people become trollish and mean due to the perceived anonymity of the internet, compared to how they would normally regulate themselves and their worst impulses when they interact with people face-to-face. -face. This propensity very likely influences the way people who grow up online, who form their relationships online, see the world and behave. 
because their digital neighborhoods, their social network play spaces, are filled with monsters. These are new and different threats that, although they may not be as physically menacing as their real-world counterparts, are a lot more numerous and can still be very psychologically damaging to anyone, regardless of age and maturity level, but especially to those who are at that awkward interstitial point between kid and adult. It's important to note as well that almost all of the data presented in this article paint a picture that is worse for teenage girls than teenage boys. They have double to triple the incidences of depression, loneliness, anxiety about bullying, and suicide attempts. And all of these data have a stronger correlation in teenage girls who are more active online, more tethered to their devices, than in those who are not. It's thought that part of this may be because of the way that boys and girls on average bully each other. Boys more typically manage these social dynamics directly and physically, while girls more typically do so psychologically. And as I mentioned, those psychological tools are more potent in the online space. There's a really great book called Odd Girl Out, which I'll talk more about at the end of this episode. But I read this book back in my early 20s, and it was somewhat revelatory for me at the time. I had no idea how bad this type of psychological aggression could be between teenage girls in particular. And some of the things that many of my female friends had said to me made a lot more sense once I'd read that book and had that additional context. The bullying that I'd experienced personally had played out in a different way, and it truly sucked. But the data indicate that not only is the more psychological type of bullying, the active and intentional undermining of a person's relationships and social status and reputation, super widespread, especially in the teenage girl demographic, it's also typically longer lasting and more likely to lead to depression and suicide attempts than other types of bullying. And again, the tools available and the social space in which these relationships form and are maintained are essentially optimized for this type of bullying. There are so many more ways to do it and so many more tools that can become ever-present, super-sharp weapons in the wrong hands. When a person becomes part of a network that they are constantly, inextricably connected to, it becomes all the more difficult to escape their tormentor. So a big part of why these stats are ballooning like they are seems to be at least in part a result of those new tools and how some people use them and the amplification of existing norms within those social spaces in how we interact with each other. So all of that information in mind, what are we to make of questions like this about smartphones ruining a generation, about a generation being ruined in the first place? How should we address these things? How should we approach these types of conversations? There are many different perspectives from which you could rationally view this information, I think. And I think that many of these perspectives are probably at least partially correct, though any of them in isolation without any of the others is almost certainly too narrow to be complete. So let's look at the handful of those types of perspectives that seem to be the ones that get the most press and therefore typically define the types of conversations that we have about this topic. First, as I mentioned briefly before, 
There's a lot more going on here than just changes in technology. Some of what's happening is no doubt the byproduct or direct consequence of increased smartphone use and our addictions, be they tenuous or all-encompassing, with all the networks of people and information and media to which those smartphones connect us. But it's important to remember that this technology and habitual shift is emerging alongside a larger generational shift that, though generations are a made-up thing and not real, and it's useful to remember that, this particular generational shift does seem to be fairly well-defined in terms of what's happening around people in this new generation, in terms of economics and rational future expectations based on all of those shifts. Or said another way, yes, kids today are not following the same trajectory as kids a generation ago, but the work environment, school environment, debt environment, inflationary environment, political environment, social environment, and essentially every other environment you can think of, including the natural environment, are also very different and rapidly changing around them. Higher education in many places today now comes with debt that can take the better part of a lifetime to pay off, and that in turn influences a person's education and career trajectory. Real estate, once considered one of the better investments a person can make, has proven time and again to actually be a pretty terrible investment for the majority of people who invest in it and who have bought into it in the past. Big companies, entities that were at one time structured to hire and then hold on to employees throughout their lives, providing all kinds of incentives to keep them around forever, building a relatively balanced relationship between company and company man, things no longer work that way for many different reasons. And the result is that university attendance is no longer the no-brainer that it once was. Buying a house is no longer an obvious next step in the path of life. And careers are built with clay foundations rather than reinforced concrete. These are rational responses to environmental factors. Anyone who operated today based on standards that were common 40 years ago would be crushed and taken advantage of. And it makes sense then that our social habits and rituals would evolve alongside these other norms. Second, a big part of this conversation, especially when discussed by adults in the press, has revolved around the general feeling that kids are staying kids longer. They're not adulting as well as they used to. They're not pursuing the typical burdens and benefits of growing up with the same gusto as teens of past generations have done. This facet is of particular interest to me because in some ways, it's super true. There are all kinds of stats available that show that young people are waiting longer to segue into what's traditionally been considered the world of adulthood. And this applies to everything from having sex, to having kids, to marriage, to work, to school, to making big investments, putting money into things like cars and houses, and even savings accounts. And this is an interesting change, but unfortunately, a lot of the response to this trend seems to be of the, well, they just need to grow up then, variety. And that's often followed by something like, back in my day, we did this and that. The implication being that things back in the day were clearly better and morally superior in some way. 
not always, but often, blanket claims that things were better back in the day are the consequence of a logical fallacy, which is often called the golden age fallacy. The idea here is that when we remember our heyday, the time period during which we were young and virile and the centers of the universe, the young but not too young people around which culture oriented itself, things were awesome and ideal. And we use that as the yardstick by which we judge everything that follows. Another useful term here is generational anxiety, which is a well-documented trend that, as far as we can tell, every single generation throughout history has experienced. This is another way of saying, essentially, that we judge younger generations using the metrics by which we were judged at that age. And if we actually do want the next generation to be better off than us, well, that's kind of a self sabotaging way to judge them. Because by definition, something will need to change. They'll need to be different from us in some way. If they were exactly the same and had exactly the same ambitions and definitions of success, they would be exactly the same as us, not better or better off. Now, it's fair to have your own opinion about this, of course, but the idea that one way of growing up and one pace of growth and one sequence of milestones in one's life is correct and good is ridiculous. There are pros and cons to any norms of this kind, and the argument that one way of doing things is superior is almost always riddled with logical errors. Something else worth thinking about is that it was extended adolescence way back in our primordial days that gave our species a boost in brain power, that we are helpless and protected from and relatively ignorant about the perils of life for most of our childhood. That's what gives our brains the chance to grow and to remain malleable and sponge-like for so long. And as our cultural norms have increased the span of our adolescences, remember that for much of history, even fairly recent history, you would be out working in the fields or later working in the factories at age four or five. So as the span of our adolescence has increased, so too have our capabilities and our civilizational body of knowledge and our standards of health and other overall metrics of success. Those have all skyrocketed as we've allowed ourselves to remain children for longer, allowed ourselves to be relatively carefree and allowed our youth to focus on enjoying and not stressing out and going around and learning without the hardcore framework and purpose that adults often have. Extending adolescence beyond simply allowing more people to enjoy the benefits of childhood longer has also arguably helped us create all the good things that we enjoy about modern civilization, because we have, over time, come to value different things as well. Will increasing the span of adolescence further result in more benefits, in wiser and happier people over the long term? I have no idea. All we have is correlatory data for this, so it's very hard to say. But criticizing the lengthening of the period in which we're able and allowed to be carefree youths rather than responsible, stern-mannered adults often leaves out this consideration completely. So while there are legitimate reasons to address and even criticize some of the changes in milestones and lifestyle trajectory 
that we see from generation to generation. Be careful not to judge these changes by the wrong standards and not to leave out that other side of the coin. Third, there's a general widespread acceptance of the bias that what are generally considered to be extroverted activities are good and healthy and normal, while activities that are typically seen as introverted are wrong, are unhealthy. They're to be avoided by all well-minded people. There is evidence that a certain amount of socialization can add to a person's overall mental well-being, but there's also evidence that people respond differently to different sorts of stimuli and to socializing and being around other people. It's valuable shorthand to say introvert and extrovert, to refer to people who are drained by and fueled by human contact, respectively. Neither of these labels are perfect, and it's unlikely that a pure extrovert or introvert exists anywhere on the planet. These are two endpoints on a spectrum, and all of us fall somewhere in between. And our place on that spectrum will be different depending on a wide range of factors, from how much sleep we had the night before, to how long it's been since we last ate a decent meal, to how much socializing we've done recently, to who we're spending time with and how we feel about other things in our lives, and also genetic factors and perhaps even epigenetic factors. There have been some good books written on this topic in recent years, and I'll link to some of those in the show notes. But even as we, as a society, slowly come to acknowledge that there are different and equally fine ways of behaving, and even with the increased capabilities people who have more introverted tendencies now possess when it comes to expressing their thoughts and participating in societal discussions, there's still a general vibe in the zeitgeist that extroverted things are good and introverted things are bad. Even this main article, which was fairly even-handed about many aspects of this conversation, fell prey to this bias toward extroversion a few times. And yes, there is some solid data that indicates certain in-person activities might relieve some of the depression and anxieties certain people feel, but those data points do not satisfactorily account for the possibility that the subjects involved in the study were not already closer to one side of the spectrum than the other, or for the many other variables that can affect their sense of depression or loneliness. What's more, it did not differentiate between types of loneliness. It's possible to be lonely, but generally happy and fulfilled as well. But it's also possible to be lonely and depressed, lonely in a painful way. So while it's valuable to have more data on this subject, much of the conversation around it seems to be weighted toward extroversion as good and pure, while the seemingly introverted activities that all these teens are participating in are considered to be generally non-ideal. And that leads nicely into the fourth perspective, that these behaviors that teens are engaging in are introverted to begin with. I would argue that many of these activities are actually incredibly social. And though they're not social in the traditional sense, in the sense of people being in physical contact with each other, that does not diminish the social value and the sense of belonging and camaraderie that they provide. You can engage in meaningful relationships via email and Snapchat. You can develop inside jokes and talk about your crushes with a friend via text or Instagram. Being engaged through a different medium is not the same as being disengaged. 
and that the engagement is taking place in what amounts to a city with a population the size of half the planet, around 4 billion people, you're also potentially seeing engagement that's informed by more influences, more information and novel experiences than ever before. There's nothing wrong with growing up and having all of your relationships take place and informed by what's available in a small town, both in terms of the variety of people you can meet and the types of things that you can do. But having more options, both in terms of who you interact with and what you can do, the experiences you can share with the people in your life, does seem to be worth considering. And compared to interactions on the internet, all of us, up until this point in history, have been interacting completely in what are essentially small towns, no matter where we grew up. There are bound to be changes as a result of that shift, beyond the obvious difference in being physically present or not being physically present. This shift could be perceived as a negative or a positive, or both, but it's an important perspective to be aware of, regardless of how you feel about it personally. Finally, we can view this issue through the lens of the downsides of the changes that are occurring. This is a very important and legitimate point of view. Ideally, we consider the upsides as well, but we should not ignore the negative consequences of what's happening, and we shouldn't stop considering how we might alleviate them. No matter how celebratory and bullish we might be about all the good stuff, and no matter how prone we might be to normalize these things as simply changes, while remaining completely neutral about what that might mean in practice. And sadly, there are a lot of downsides to consider here. There are increases pretty much across the board when it comes to depression, suicide, general anxiety, mood disorders. Some of these issues have chemical components that we've come to understand a little bit better in recent years, and some even have medical remedies that have saved lives, both literally and in the sense of allowing people to live rather than feeling a cloud of oppressive sadness or discontent all the time. There have been cases of doctors over-prescribing those same medications and arguably over-diagnosing many conditions that in some cases shouldn't even be considered conditions. But that's a topic for an entirely different episode, I think. What's important for the purposes of this episode is that we recognize that, yes, there are some issues that are latent in some people or more easily triggered in some people than others by a variety of things, while for other people, these issues are arising as a result of stimuli in our environment and the way that society operates. And there does seem to be a correlation between some of the habits we've developed around our most used always-on technologies and our rates of depression, suicide, anxiety, and things of that nature. I think there will likely be some technological and societal solutions to some of these issues. Reducing the preponderance of notifications and other pings in our lives would be a good start, though the economic incentives for app developers and social network operators are currently misaligned with that particular goal. They're currently very much incentivized to keep us glued to our screens and to pull our attention away from anything else that we might do, despite how negatively that seems to affect us in numerous ways. I think infrastructural adjustments could also help us in this regard. Better education for both parents and kids about how to integrate these technologies into our lives without being owned by them. That would be quite the boon. We could learn to make use of these incredible tools 
rather than allowing them to use us, which is often the case today. At home, at school, in our social lives, this, I think, would lead to a better balance for most people, whatever balance might mean for their individual priorities and where they fall on the introvert-extrovert spectrum. Again, the incentives are currently misaligned with this goal, and a lot of parents are just as bad as their kids in how they use technology. And schools barely have enough resources to teach anything beyond regurgitation for tests, much less help teach good tech habits. But it's a potential direction moving forward if we could reallocate the correct resources and get the correct people interested in it. For the foreseeable future, though, managing this will be on us as individuals. We'll need to regulate our use of these technologies, much like we regulate our diets, our workout routines, and our work-life balance, which probably means that a lot of us will struggle to manage these things well and may need help along the way in various different forms. But hopefully we'll eventually arrive at a point where we are in a good place to take a step back and see who we have become as a collection of cultures, as a globe-spanning species as a consequence of having and optimally using these amazing tools. Maybe we'll develop in such a way that our technologies bring nothing but upside rather than the way it is today, where we have a good deal of upside with a hefty dose of downside, along with some pretty amazing stuff that we don't fully understand yet and which could turn out to be either negative or positive in the long term. Then again, based on historical precedent, if that happens, it'll probably be right before some new technological and generational shift changes everything again. And we'll find ourselves feeling around in the dark, trying to make the best of something that seems at the same time both miraculous and scary. And as we do so, we'll also spare some energy to worry about what will happen to all of the kids in a world so filled with change and uncertainty. The book that I'd like to recommend today, I already mentioned in the main body of the episode, Odd Girl Out by Rachel Simmons, came out originally, I want to say in 2000 or 2001. It's been a little while. And I read it ages ago. And it was a really revelatory moment for me. It almost seems silly to talk about because these are the types of things that seem kind of obvious once you learn to recognize it and see what's going on. But growing up as a male teenager and then a male 20-something, I was aware of very certain types of subtext. And a lot of it was very shallow subtext in a way because of the way typically, on average at least, teenage and 20-something boys and men deal with each other compared to teenage and 20-something girls and women. And particularly, Odd Girl Out deals with the difference in types of aggression between these two groups. And I distinctly remember, as I read this book, having comment after comment that my then-girlfriend and also several female friends of mine had made that had made little sense to me when they mentioned them to me. But then after reading this book, it all fell into place, and I realized why some of the things that they were talking to me about were a lot more meaningful and important than I had initially recognized. And it's particularly valuable in that it gets into the nitty-gritty of 
first and foremost, what some of these things look like, what this type of aggression looks like, why it's different from physical aggression that you might more typically find in young boys as they push each other at recess and things like that, but also some of the factors behind that, how infrastructurally and culturally, in a lot of cases, we encourage young boys to be rowdy with each other. But little girls are not allowed to do that. They are taught from a very young age that it's not ladylike, that it's not proper for them to behave in that fashion. And so some of the things that could allow them to let off steam or allow them to make some of this aggressiveness a little bit more transitory instead becomes a really deep-seated and complex under-the-surface thing. Now, this book recently had an update, and it's been expanded to include some teaching sections as well. So if you teach a class or have some kids that you think might benefit from exposure to these ideas, there are additional resources included for that type of thing. But it's a really wonderful book if you want to put some of these pieces together. I would encourage anybody to read it, no matter what your gender or your upbringing was like. But it was particularly valuable for me personally as a young 20-something It led to a whole lot of realizations that then led to a whole lot of other realizations later. Very foundational knowledge that is worth having. The book again is Odd Girl Out, and the author is Rachel Simmons. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of Let's Know Things at letsknowthings.com. Consider signing up for the free Let's Know Things newsletter while you're there, which goes out every Monday and contains a selection of links to interesting things. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I'm at Colin is my name everywhere except Facebook where I'm just Colin Wright. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. 